Chapter Twelve, Part One of Industrial Biography, Ironworkers and Toolmakers by Samuel Smiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall. Henry Maudsley, Part One. The successful construction of all machinery depends on the perfection of the tools employed, and whoever is a master of the arts of tool making possesses the key to the construction of all machines. The contrivance and construction of tools must therefore ever stand at the head of the industrial arts. C. Babbage, Exposition of 1851 Henry Maudsley was born at Woolwich, towards the end of last century, in a house standing in the court at the back of the Salutation Inn, the entrance to which is nearly opposite the Arsenal Gates. His father was a native of Lancashire, descended from an old family of the same name, the head of which resided at Maudsley Hall near Ormskirk at the beginning of the seventeenth century. The family were afterwards scattered, and several of its members became workmen. William Maudsley, the father of Henry, belonged to the neighbourhood of Bolton, where he was brought up to the trade of a joiner. His principal employment while working at his trade in Lancashire consisted in making the wood-framing of cotton machinery, in the construction of which cast-iron had not yet been introduced. Having got into some trouble in his neighbourhood through some alleged liaison, William enlisted in the Royal Artillery, and the corps to which he belonged was shortly afterwards sent to the West Indies. He was several times engaged in battle, and in his last action he was hit by a musket-bullet in the throat. The soldier's stock which he wore had a piece cut out of it by the ball, the direction of which was diverted, and though severely wounded, his life was saved. He brought home the stock and preserved it as a relic, afterwards leaving it to his son. Long after, the son would point to the stock, hung up against the wall, and say, But for that bit of leather there would have been no Henry Maudsley. The wounded artilleryman was invalided and sent home to Woolwich, the headquarters of his corps where he was shortly after discharged. Being a handy workman, he sought and obtained employment at the arsenal. He was afterwards appointed a storekeeper in the dockyard. It was during the former stage of William Maudsley's employment at Woolwich that the subject of this memoir was born in the house in the court above mentioned, on the 22nd of August, 1771. The boy was early set to work. When twelve years old he was employed as a powder-monkey, in making and filling cartridges. After two years he was passed on to the carpenter's shop where his father worked, and there he became acquainted with tools and the art of working in wood and iron. From the first, the latter seems to have had by far the greatest charms for him. The blacksmith's shop was close to the carpenter's, and Harry seized every opportunity that offered of plying the hammer, the file, and the chisel, in preference to the saw and the plane. Many a cuff did the foreman of the carpenters give him for absenting himself from his proper shop, and stealing off to the smithy. His propensity was indeed so strong, that at the end of a year it was thought better, as he was a handy, clever boy, to yield to his earnest desire to be placed in the smithy, and he was removed thither accordingly in his fifteenth year. His heart being now in his work, he made rapid progress, and soon became an expert smith and metal-worker. He displayed his skill especially in forging light ironwork, and a favourite job of his was the making of trivets out of the solid, 
which only the dab hands of the shop could do, but which he threw off with great rapidity in first-rate style. These trivets were made out of Spanish iron bolts, rare stuff which, though exceedingly tough, forged like wax under the hammer. Even at the close of his life, when he had acquired eminent distinction as an inventor, and he was a large employer of skilled labour, he looked back with pride to the forging of his early days in Woolwich Arsenal. He used to describe with much gusto how the old experienced hands, with whom he was a great favourite, would crowd around him when he was forging his trivets, some of which may to this day be in use among Woolwich housewives for supporting the toast-plate before the bright fire against tea-time. This was, however, entirely contraband work, done on the sly and strictly prohibited by the superintending officer, who was kindly to signal his approach by blowing his nose in a peculiar manner, so that all forbidden jobs might be put out of the way by the time he entered the shop. We have referred to Maudsley's early dexterity in trivet-making, a circumstance trifling enough in itself, for the purpose of illustrating the progress which he had made in a branch of his art of the greatest importance in tool and machine-making. Nothing pleased him more in his after-life than to be set to work upon an unusual piece of forging, and to overcome, as none could do so cleverly as he, the difficulties which it presented. The pride of art was as strong in him as it must have been in the medieval smiths, who turned out those beautiful pieces of workmanship still regarded as the pride of our cathedrals and old mansions. In Maudsley's case his dexterity as a smith was eventually directed to machinery rather than ornamental work, though had the latter been his line of labour we do not doubt that he would have reached the highest distinction. The manual skill which our young blacksmith had acquired was such as to give him considerable reputation in his craft, and he was spoken of even in the London shops as one of the most dexterous hands in the trade. It was this circumstance that shortly after led to his removal from the smithy at Woolwich Arsenal to a sphere more suitable for the development of his mechanical ability. We have already stated in the preceding memoir that Joseph Brahma took out the first patent for his lock in 1784, and a second for its improvement several years later. But notwithstanding the acknowledged superiority of the new lock over all others, Brahma experienced the greatest difficulty in getting it manufactured with sufficient precision, and at such a price, as to render it an article of extensive commerce. This arose from the generally inferior character of the workmanship of the day, as well as the clumsiness and uncertainty of the tools then in use. Brahma found that even the best manual dexterity was not to be trusted, and yet it seemed to be his only resource, for machine tools of a superior kind had not yet been invented. In this dilemma he determined to consult an ingenious old German artisan, then working with William Moody, a general blacksmith in Whitechapel. This German was reckoned one of the most ingenious workmen in London at that time. Brahma had several long interviews with him with the object of endeavouring to solve the difficult problems of how to secure precise workmanship in lock-making. But they could not solve it. They saw that without better tools the difficulty was insuperable. And then Brahma began to fear that his lock would remain a mere mechanical curiosity and be prevented from coming into general use. He was, indeed, sorely puzzled what next to do, when one of the hammermen in Moody's shop ventured to suggest that there was a young man in the Woolwich Arsenal smithy, named Maudsley, 
who was so ingenious in such matters that nothing bet him, and he recommended that Mr. Brahma should have a talk with him on the subject of his difficulty. Maudsley was at once sent for to Brahma's workshop, and appeared before the lockmaker, a tall, strong, comely young fellow, then only eighteen years old. Brahma was almost ashamed to lay his case before such a mere youth, but necessity constrained him to try all methods of accomplishing his object, and Maudsley's suggestions in reply to his statement of the case were so modest, so sensible, and as the result proved so practical, that the master was constrained to admit that the lad before him had an old head though set on young shoulders. Brahma decided to adopt the youth's suggestions, and made him a present on the spot and offered to give him a job if he was willing to come and work in the town shop. Maudsley gladly accepted the offer, and in due time appeared before Brahma to enter upon his duties. As Maudsley had served no regular apprenticeship, and was of a very youthful appearance, the foreman of the shop had considerable doubts as to his ability to take rank alongside his experienced hands. But Maudsley soon set his master's and the foreman's mind at rest, Pointing to a worn-out vice-bench, he said to Brahma, "'Perchance, if I can make that as good as new by six o'clock to-night, it will satisfy your foreman that I am entitled to rank as a tradesman, and take place among your men, even though I have not served a seven years' apprenticeship.' There was so much self-reliant ability in the proposal, which, moreover, was so reasonable, that it was once succeeded to. Off went Maudsley's coat, up went his shirt-sleeves, and to work he set with a will upon the old bench. The vice-jaws were re-steeled in no time, filed up, re-cut, all the parts cleaned and made trim, and set into form again. By six o'clock the old vice was screwed up to its place, its jaws were hardened and let down to a proper temper, and the old bench was made to look so smart and neat that it threw all the neighbouring benches into the shade. Brahma and his foreman came round to see it, while the men of the shop looked admiringly on. It was examined and pronounced a first-rate job. This diploma piece of work secured Maudsley's footing, and next Monday morning he came on as one of the regular hands. He soon took rank in the shop as a first-class workman. Loving his art, he aimed at excellence in it, and succeeded. For it must be understood that the handicraftsman, whose heart is in his calling, feels as much honest pride in turning out a piece of thoroughly good workmanship as the sculptor or the painter does in executing a statue or a picture. In course of time the most difficult and delicate jobs came to be entrusted to Maudsley, and nothing gave him pleasure than to be set to work upon an entirely new piece of machinery. And thus he rose, naturally and steadily, from hand to headwork, for his manual dexterity was the least of his gifts. He possessed an intuitive power of mechanical analysis and synthesis. He had a quick eye to perceive the arrangement requisite to effect given purposes and whenever a difficulty arose, his inventive mind set to work to overcome it. His fellow workmen were not slow to recognise his many admirable qualities of hand, mind, and heart, and he became not only their favourite, but the hero of the shop. Perhaps he owed something to his fine personal appearance. Hence, on gala days, when the men turned out in procession, Harry was usually selected to march at their head and carry the flag. His conduct as a son also was as admirable as his qualities as a workman. His father dying shortly after Maudsley entered Brahma's concern, he was accustomed to walk down to Woolwich every Saturday night 
and hand over to his mother, for whom he had the tenderest regard, a considerable share of his week's wages, and thus he continued to do so as long as she lived. Notwithstanding his youth, he was raised from one post to another, until he was appointed, by unanimous consent, the head foreman of the works, and was recognised by all who had occasion to do business there as Brahma's right-hand man. He not only won the heart of his master, but, what proved of far greater importance to him, he also won the heart of his master's pretty housemaid, Sarah Tyndall by name, whom he married, and she went hand in hand with him through life, an admirable helpmeet, in every way worthy of the noble character of the great mechanic. Maudsley was found especially useful by his master in devising the tools for making his patent locks, and many were the beautiful contrivances which he invented for the purpose of ensuring their more accurate and speedy manufacture, with a minimum degree of labour, and without the need of any large amount of manual dexterity on the part of the workman. The lock was so delicate a machine that the identity of several parts of which it was composed was found to be an absolute necessity. Mere handicraft, however skilled, could not secure the requisite precision of workmanship, nor could the parts be turned out in sufficient quantity to meet any large demand. It was therefore requisite to devise machine tools which should not blunder, not turn out imperfect work, machines, in short, which should be in a great measure independent of the want of dexterity of individual workmen, but which should unerringly labour in their prescribed track, and do the work set them, even in the minutest details, after the methods devised by their inventor. In this department Maudsley was eminently successful, and to his laborious ingenuity, as first displayed in Brahma's workshops and afterwards in his own establishment, we unquestionably owe much of the power and accuracy of our present self-acting machines. Brahma himself was not backward in admitting that, to Henry Maudsley's practical skill in contriving the machines for manufacturing his locks on a large scale, the success of his invention was, in a great degree, attributable. In further proof of his manual dexterity, it may be mentioned that he constructed with his own hands the identical padlock which so severely tested the powers of Mr. Hobbs in 1851. And when it is considered that the lock had been made for more than half a century, and did not embody any of the modern improvements, it will perhaps be regarded not only as creditable to the principle on which it was constructed, but to the workmanship of its maker, that it should so long have withstood the various mechanical dexterity to which it was exposed. Besides the invention of improved machine tools for the manufacture of locks, Maudsley was of further service to Brahma in applying the expedient to his famous hydraulic press, without which it would probably have remained an impracticable, though a highly ingenious machine. As in other instances of great inventions, the practical success of the whole is often found to depend upon the action of some apparently trifling detail. This was especially the case with the hydraulic press, to which Maudsley added the essential feature of the self-tightening collar above described in the memoir of Brahma. Mr. James Naismith is our authority for ascribing this invention to Maudsley, who was certainly quite competent to have made it. And it is a matter of fact that Brahma's specification of the press says nothing of the hollow collar on which its efficient action mainly depends. Mr. Naismith says, Maudsley himself told me, or led me to believe, that it was he who invented the self-tightening collar for the hydraulic press, without which it would never have been a serviceable machine. 
As the self-tightening collar is to the hydraulic press, so the steam-blast is to the locomotive. It is the one thing needful that has made it effective in practice. If Maudsley was the inventor of the collar, that one contrivance ought to immortalise him. He used to tell me of it with great gusto, and I have no reason to doubt the correctness of his statement. Whoever really struck out the idea of the collar displayed the instinct of the true inventor, who invariably seeks to accomplish his object by the adoption of the simplest possible means. During the time that Maudsley held the important office of manager of Brahma's works, his highest wages were not more than thirty shillings a week. He himself thought that he was worth more to his master, as indeed he was, and he felt somewhat mortified that he should have to make an application for an advance. But the increasing expense of his family compelled him in a measure to do so. His application was refused in such a manner as greatly to hurt his sensitive feelings, and the result was that he threw up his situation, and determined to begin working on his own account. His first start in business was in the year 1797, in a small workshop and smithy situated in Wells Street, Oxford Street. It was in an awful state of dirt and dilapidation when he first became its tenant. He entered the place on a Friday, but by the Saturday evening, with the help of his excellent wife, he had the shop thoroughly cleaned, whitewashed, and put in readiness for beginning work on the next Monday morning. He had then the pleasure of hearing the roar of his own forge fire, and the cheering ring of the hammer on his own anvil, and great was the pride he felt in standing for the first time within his own smithy, and executing orders for customers on his own account. His first customer was an artist, who gave him an order to execute the ironwork of a large easel, embodying some new arrangements, and the work was punctually done to his employer's satisfaction. Other orders followed, and he soon became fully employed. His fame as a first-rate workman was almost as great as that of his former master, and many who had been accustomed to do business with him at Pimlico followed him to Well Street. Long years after, the thought of these early days of self-dependence and hard work used to set him in a glow, and he would dilate to his intimate friends upon his early struggles and his first successes, which were much more highly prized by him than those of his maturer years. With a true love of his craft, Maudsley continued to apply himself, as he had done whilst working as Brahma's foreman, to the best methods of ensuring accuracy and finish of work, so as in a measure to be independent of the carelessness or want of dexterity of the workman. With this object he aimed at the contrivance of improved machine tools, which should be as much self-acting and self-regulating as possible. And it was while pursuing this study that he wrought out the important mechanical invention with which his name is usually identified, that of the slide-rest. It continued to be his special delight, when engaged in the execution of any piece of work in which he took personal interest, to introduce a system of identity of parts, and to adapt for the purpose some one or other of the mechanical contrivances with which his fertile brain was always teeming. Thus it was from his desire to leave nothing to the chance of mere individual dexterity of hand that he introduced the slide-rest in the lathe, and rendered it one of the most important of machine-tools. The first device of this kind was contrived by him for Brahma, in whose shops it continued in practical use long after he had begun business for himself. 
"'I have seen the slide rest,' says Mr. James Naismith, "'the first that Henry Maudsley made, in use at Messrs. Brahma's workshops. "'And in it were all those arrangements which are to be found in the most modern slide rest of our own day, "'all of which are the legitimate offspring of Maudsley's original rest. "'If this tool be yet extant, it ought to be preserved with the greatest care.' for it was the beginning of those mechanical triumphs which give to the days in which we live so much of their distinguished character. A very few words of explanation will serve to illustrate the importance of Maudsley's invention. Every person is familiar with the use of the common turning lathe. It is a favourite machine with amateur mechanics, and its employment is indispensable for the execution of all kinds of rounded work in wood and metal. Perhaps there is no contrivance by which the skill of the handicraftsman has been more effectually aided than by this machine. Its origin is lost in the shades of antiquity. Its most ancient form was probably the potter's wheel, from which it advanced, by successive improvements, to its present highly improved form. It was found that, by whatever means a substance capable of being cut, could be made to revolve with a circular motion round a fixed right line as a centre. A cutting tool applied to its surface would remove the inequalities so that any part of such surface should be equidistant from that centre. Such is the fundamental idea of the ordinary turning lathe. The ingenuity and experience of mechanics working such an instrument enable them to add many improvements to it, until the skilful artisan at length produced not merely circular turning of the most beautiful and accurate description, but exquisite figure-work and complicated geometrical designs, depending upon the cycloidal and eccentric movements which were from time to time added to the machine. The artisans of the Middle Ages were very skilful in the use of the lathe, and turned out much beautiful screen and stall-work still to be seen in our cathedrals, as well as twisted and swash-work for the balusters of staircases and other ornamental purposes. English Mechanics seem early to have distinguished themselves as improvers of the lathe, and in Moxon's Treatise on Turning, published in 1680, we find Mr. Thomas Oldfield, at the sign of the Flower de Luce, near the Savoy in the Strand, named as an excellent maker of oval engines and swash engines, showing that such machines were then in some demand. The French writer Plumier also mentions an ingenious modification of the lathe, by means of which any kind of reticulated form could be given to the work, and from its being employed to ornament the handles of knives, it was called by him the machine à manche de couteau de l'Angleterre. But the French artisans were at that time much better skilled than the English in the use of tools, and it is most probable that we owe to the Flemish and French Protestant workmen who flocked into England in such large numbers during the religious persecutions of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries the improvement, if not the introduction, of the art of turning, as well as many other arts hereafter to be referred to. It is certain that at the period to which we refer, numerous treatises were published in France on the art of turning, some of them of the most elaborate character. Such were the works of de la Hire, who described how every kind of polygon might be turned in the lathe, de la Condamine, who showed how a lathe could turn all sorts of irregular figures by means of tracers, and of Grand Jean, Morin, Plumier, Bergeron, and many other writers. The work of Plumier is especially elaborate, entering into the construction of the lathe in its various parts, the making of the tools and cutters, 
and the different motions to be given to the machine by means of wheels, eccentrics, and other expedients, amongst which may be mentioned one very much resembling the slide-rest and planing machine combined. From this work it appears that turning had long been a favourite pursuit in France with amateurs of all ranks, who spared no expense in the contrivance and perfection of elaborate machinery for the production of complex figures. There was, at that time, a great passion for automata in France, which gave rise to many highly ingenious devices, such as Camus' miniature carriage, made for Louis Fourteenth when a child, de Gennes' mechanical peacock, Van Cassel's duck, and Maillardet's conjurer. It had the effect of introducing among the higher order of artists habits of nice and accurate workmanship in executing delicate pieces of machinery. And the same combination of mechanical powers which made the steel spider crawl, the duck quack, or wave the tiny rod of the magician, contributed in future years to purposes of higher import. The wheels and pinions, which in these automata almost eluded the human senses by their minuteness, reappearing in modern times in the stupendous mechanism of our self-acting lathes, spinning-mules, and steam-engines. In our own country, says Professor Willis, the literature on this subject is so defective that it is very difficult to discover what progress we were making during the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries. We believe the fact to be that the progress made in England down to the end of the last century had been very small indeed, and that the lathe had experienced little or no improvement until Maudsley took it in hand. Nothing seems to have been known of the slide-rest until he reinvented it, and applied it to the production of machinery of a far more elaborate character than had ever before been contemplated as possible. Professor Willis says that Brahma's, in other words, Maudsley's, slide-rest of 1794, is so different from that described in the French Encyclopédie of 1772, that the two could not have had a common origin. We are therefore led to the conclusion that Maudsley's invention was entirely independent of all that had gone before, and that he contrived it for the special purpose of overcoming the difficulties which he himself experienced in turning out duplicate parts in large numbers. At all events, he was so early and zealous a promoter of its use, that we think he may, in the eyes of all practical mechanics, stand as the parent of its introduction to the workshops of England. It is unquestionable that, at the time when Maudsley began the improvement of machine tools, the methods of working in wood and metals were exceedingly imperfect. Mr. William Fairburn has stated that, when he first became acquainted with mechanical engineering, about sixty years ago, there were no self-acting tools. Everything was executed by hand. There were neither planing, slotting, nor shaping machines, and the whole stock of an engineering or machine establishment might be summed up in a few ill-constructed lathes, and a few drills and boring machines of rude construction. Our mechanics were equally backward in contrivances for working in wood. Thus, when Sir Samuel Bentham made a tour through the manufacturing districts of England in 1791, he was surprised to find how little had been done to substitute the invariable accuracy of machinery for the uncertain dexterity of the human hand. Steam power was, as yet, only employed in driving spinning machines, rolling metals, pumping water, and such-like purposes. In the working of wood, no machinery had been introduced beyond the common turning lathe and some saws, and a few boring tools used in the making of blocks for the navy. Even saws worked by inanimate force for slitting timber 
though in extensive use in foreign countries, were nowhere to be found in Great Britain. As everything depended on the dexterity of hand and correctness of eye of the workman, the work turned out was of very unequal merit, besides being exceedingly costly. Even in the construction of comparatively simple machines, the expense was so great as to present a formidable obstacle to their introduction and extensive use. And but for the invention of machine-making tools, the use of the steam-engine in the various forms in which it is now applied for the production of power could never have become general. In turning a piece of work on the old-fashioned lathe, the workman applied and guided his tool by means of muscular strength. The work was made to revolve, and the turner, holding the cutting tool firmly upon the long, straight, guiding edge of the rest along which he carried it, and pressing its point firmly against the article to be turned, was thus enabled to reduce its surface to the required size and shape. Some dexterous turners were able, with practice and carefulness, to execute very clever pieces of work by this simple means. But when the article to be turned was of considerable size, and especially when it was of metal, the expenditure of muscular strength was so great that the workmen soon became exhausted. The slightest variation in the pressure of the tool led to an irregularity of surface, and with the utmost care on the workman's part he could not avoid occasionally cutting a little too deep, in consequence of which he must necessarily go over the surface again to reduce the hole to the level of that accidentally cut too deep, and thus possibly the job would be altogether spoiled by the diameter of the article under operation being made too small for its intended purpose. The introduction of the slide-rest furnished a complete remedy for this source of imperfection. The principle of the invention consists in constructing and fitting the rest so that instead of being screwed down to one place and the tool in the hands of the workman, travelling over it, the rest itself shall hold the cutting tool firmly fixed in it, and slide along the surface of the bench in a direction exactly parallel with the axis of the work. Before its invention, various methods had been tried with the object of enabling the work to be turned true, independent of the dexterity of the workman. Thus, a square steel cutter used to be firmly fixed in a bed, along which it was wedged from point to point of the work and tolerable accuracy was in this way secured. But the slide-rest was much more easily managed, and the result was much more satisfactory. All that the workman had to do, after the tool was firmly fitted into the rest, was merely to turn a screw-handle, and thus advance the cutter along the face of the work as required, with an expenditure of strength so slight as scarcely to be appreciable. And even this labour has now been got rid of, for by an arrangement of the gearing, the slide-rest itself has been made self-acting, and advances with the revolution of the work in the lathe, which thus supplies the place of the workman's hand. The accuracy of the turning done in this beautiful yet simple arrangement is as mechanically perfect as work can be. The pair of steel fingers which hold the cutting tool firmly in their grasp never tire, and it moves along the metal to be cut with an accuracy and precision which the human hand, however skilled, could never equal. The effects of the introduction of the slide-rest were very shortly felt in all departments of mechanism, though it had to encounter some of the ridicule with which all new methods of working are usually received, and for a time was spoken of in derision as Maudsley's go-cart. Its practical advantages were so decided that it gradually made its way, and became an established tool in all the best mechanical workshops. 
it was found alike capable of executing the most delicate and the most ponderous pieces of machinery. And as slide lathes could be manufactured to any extent, machinery, steam engines, and all kinds of metal work could now be turned out in a quantity and at a price that, but for its use, could never have been practicable. In course of time various modifications of the machine were introduced, such as the planing machine, the wheel-cutting machine, and other beautiful tools of the slide-rest principle, the result of which has been the extraordinary development of mechanical production and power which is so characteristic a feature of the age we live in. It is not, indeed, saying all too much to state, says Mr. Naismith, a most competent judge in such matters, that its influence in improving and extending the use of machinery has been as great as that produced by the improvement of the steam-engine in respect to perfecting manufacture and extending commerce, inasmuch as without the aid of the vast accession to our power of producing perfect mechanism, which it at once supplied, we could never have worked out into practical and profitable forms the conceptions of those master minds who, during the last half-century, have so successfully pioneered the way for mankind. The steam-engine itself, which supplies us with such unbounded power, owes its present perfection to this most admirable means of giving to metallic objects the most precise and perfect geometrical forms. How could we, for instance, have good steam-engines if we had not the means of boring out a true cylinder, or turning a true piston-rod, or planing a valve-face? It is this alone which has furnished us with the means of carrying into practice the accumulated results of scientific investigation on mechanical subjects. It would be blamable, indeed, continues Mr. Naismith, after having endeavoured to set forth the vast advantages which have been conferred on the mechanical world, and therefore on mankind generally, by the invention and introduction of the slide-rest, were I to suppress the name of that admirable inventor to whom we are indebted for this powerful agent towards the attainment of mechanical perfection. I allude to Henry Maudsley, whose useful life was enthusiastically devoted to the grand object of improving our means of producing perfect workmanship and machinery. To him we are certainly indebted for the slide-rest, and consequently, to say the least, we are indirectly so for the vast benefits which have resulted from the introduction of so powerful an agent in perfecting our machinery and mechanism generally. The indefatigable care which he took in inculcating and diffusing among his workmen and mechanical men generally sound ideas of practical knowledge and refined views of construction, have rendered and ever will continue to render his name identified with all that is noble in the ambition of the lover of mechanical perfection. End of chapter 12, part 1